From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. And this week, we're talking money. American Big Rescue money. Act of 2021, Section 2, Table of Contents. Treasury not otherwise appropriated $250 million to remain available until expended for purposes of $30 million shall be used for the purposes described in Section 200 of the Domestic Violence Service Act. $1,464,000,000. We're going to crack open the American Rescue Plan and see what lies inside for Colorado. I'm your host this week, Benta Berkland. With me is CPR's public affairs team, Andrew Kenny. Hello. Hey. And our congressional covering colleague, Caitlin Kim, joining us remotely. Yo. Congress just passed a $1.9 trillion plan. Before we start to break that down, let's just take a moment and try to envision how big this whole thing actually is. Courtesy of Wisconsin's Republican Senator Ron Johnson. The, the human mind really can't contemplate what a trillion is. So, so here's the calculation. I should have brought a dollar bill to just demonstrate its, its thickness, but the thickness of a dollar bill is 4.3 thousandths of an inch thick. We're talking about $1.9 trillion, which would stack up to 135,732 miles high. Now, Madam President, the distance to the moon is 238,900 miles. So that stack of $1.9 trillion worth of $1 bills would be more than halfway to the moon. That is what we are debating, spending, a stack of dollar bills that extends more than halfway the distance to the moon. I would say that I actually understand it less now that I used that metaphor. That does not help me at all. Do not get celestial bodies involved anywhere in my mental math. <laughs> I know. It's like dollars, trillions, miles. I'm like, wait, what number are we talking about Maybe he about could have here? just said twice the amount we spend on the military every year. Or or maybe circumference. <laughs> oh, no. No. Oh, no. no. Please, Lynn. <laughs> Don't no. make it three-dimensional. <laughs> no. If you really want your mind blown, Andy, if you put what they just passed on top of everything else they just passed, you're talking over $5 trillion. Wow. So definitely probably get you to the moon. That is a big number. And back. Lynn, let's start with something that you've been following a lot, really, ever since the CARES Act passed last spring. How will everyday Coloradans be impacted by this latest influx of money? Well, there's a lot that will put money in people's pockets. You know, we're talking a $1,400 stimulus check for an individual making less than $75,000 a year, phasing out by $80,000 per year. Um, for people who've been unemployed, the federal unemployment insurance boosts of $300 per week will remain until September 6th. And let me jump in there. It's not just the boost. They'll actually be extending benefits. For a lot of people, benefits would have expired this month, and they've now got six extra months of not just the boost, but of receiving benefits, period. That's huge. And what does that mean for people, Andy? Because I know you've talked to a lot of people that are relying on this money. Well, you know, when benefits ran out the last time, which was just a few months ago, I heard from people who were pawning wedding rings, who were not paying rent, who were just barely hanging on until the new benefits showed up. So, those folks will be in a much more stable position throughout most of the end of this year. And then one thing I think I, I've heard quite a bit about is this direct money going to families with young children. Right. Um, this is basically the expansion of the child tax credit. Essentially, it's guaranteed income for kids every month. It's a $3,000 per kid, um, ages 6 to 17. You can get a little bit more if they're younger than that. 
Hmm. And they get it monthly. Um, Not that full amount, but part of that, you know, monthly. Hmm. It's only for a year, but some Democrats are already talking about how to make that permanent. And Colorado Senator Michael Bennett has been a big proponent of this policy. It seems like it's a pretty significant win for him. Did he play like a role in negotiating this? Yeah. Well, you know, when he ran for president, this was something that he talked about as well. But he's been pushing this since, I think, about 2015. I mean, you know, he he talked a lot about how this will help raise about 50 percent of the kids in poverty out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's been involved with another with a group of Democratic senators uh, really pushing this matter in the caucus and, you know, now in the Senate and with President Biden, apparently. So our show, Colorado Matters, talked to our other senator, Democrat John Hickenlooper, and he mentioned something that did not make it into this final bill, a $15 minimum wage. We're going to have to negotiate, almost certainly, and try and get Republican support. And I'm ever the optimist. I think we will be able to get that support. But you know, we haven't had an increase in the minimum wage for 10 years. I mean, that's outrageous. It's just ridiculous. And it's part of why we've got so much homelessness. It's part of why there's social unrest at every level. I don't think the $15 minimum wage is going to go away anytime soon, but, you know, it's not something that's going to get a lot of Republican votes. And I I think this is interesting because Hickenlooper is part of this sort of moderate caucus in the Senate, you know, trying to work with Republicans and find bipartisan solutions. But this is not going to be an area where they can find bipartisan solution. Yes, $15 can pass through the House where it's a simple majority. But in the Senate, when you need 60 people, You're not going to get 10 Republican senators on a $15 minimum wage at this point. It's just not going to happen. He seemed to kind of allude to that because he said he is ever the optimist. Uh, Speaking of not having consensus, this package passed on a strictly party line vote. President Biden did say that Democrats came close to getting Republican support, but ultimately did not get that. Biden dual tracked it, you know, bipartisan negotiations while also pursuing reconciliation. Now, what now? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Can, can you explain uh, dual tract and uh, reconciliation? Sorry, um, dual tract. You know, on the one hand, he was doing bipartisan negotiations with Republicans. But on the other hand, he was also telling Democrats, yeah, go ahead, do reconciliation. And reconciliation is basically this budget process in the Senate that they can do to basically pass a bill by simple majority. 51 votes max is what you need. So they were both simultaneously trying to find a way to get it done with strong 60 vote support while also getting ready for the very real possibility, which is what they ended up doing, that they would use some legal maneuvering to get it done with their very bare majority. Right. Because, you know, going back to something you had mentioned earlier, they didn't want the unemployment insurance to lapse, which it does mid-March. Andy, I'm kind of relieved we don't have to deal with the reconciliation process at the local level here. Yeah, we've managed not to make things that complicated exactly in Colorado. I do think it's funny, Ben, to mention that, uh, as Biden said, they almost got some Republican support. It was almost bipartisan. I don't think that counts for much. Uh, No, the, the two sides were actually really far apart, even like this bipartisan group. Republicans in that group were talking about like a $600 billion range. That's like $1.2 trillion less than what the Democrats and Biden were proposing. That's only a third of halfway to the moon. (laughs) Exactly. What a lot of lawmakers we deal with every day may want to know is what does this do for state and local governments? Colorado should be getting about $6 billion total. $4 billion will be going to the state and $2 billion for local governments and tribal governments. So with the first COVID stimulus package, some people were frustrated that Governor Jared Polis didn't consult with a lot of state lawmakers about how to spend the money. 
This time around for the state funds, I think it could be a little bit different because lawmakers are actually in session at the Capitol. So I think we may see more coordination. Yeah, that's right. And we're already actually seeing a a sign of a different approach with the state stimulus package, which is a separate thing that they're doing. Democratic and Republican lawmakers had a big joint press conference to talk about how they're going to collaboratively spend about another $700 million. Can you explain where this state money comes from? Yeah, essentially, it's a windfall. They did not do as badly in terms of state revenue as they expected that they might during the pandemic. Sources of revenue like income taxes and sales taxes were just a little more steady through the pandemic than they anticipated. So they made these huge cuts last year, but they didn't need to, in the end, make all of them. So now they got a little extra one-time spending money left over, which this week they announced kind of their plans of where they wanted to spend that. Well, so where do they want to spend it? Because you've got Republicans and Democrats, it sounds like, agreeing on a lot of ideas with the governor. It would surprise somebody who only follows federal politics. They were simpatico on this one. They talked about some shovel-ready roadway projects, the Eisenhower Tunnel, you know, on I-70 to Vail. They talked about clean energy transition, some money for local governments and others to install renewable energy and help people get jobs when they've been displaced out of the coal industry. The list really goes on. Hmm. Colorado's economy, especially for white-collar workers, people fared pretty well during the pandemic. The economy is doing better than people expected, like you mentioned. Mm. We've heard from Republicans nationally, especially questioning why the federal relief, why this huge influx of money is necessary when there are states like Colorado that aren't doing that bad. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert had a typically colorful reaction when she commented on this. This legislation uses COVID like cheap drugstore concealer, masking the nasty truth about Democrat spending. This is nothing more than a trashy spending spree. While the tax revenues for the state, for example, might be doing okay, that's on the back of, again, those white-collar professionals, Mm -hmm. uh, continued spending, But the other side of the economy is really still hurting. People who have been out of work for months because entertainment venues, restaurants have been so severely cut back and that it's going to take a while to dig out for those sectors and those people. I've been talking to some local leaders on the Western Slope. And honestly, you know, the response varied. Some talked about needing the money. Others, while not directly lobbying for state and local aid, said they know how they use it if they get it. Like there was only one person that I spoke with who said, nope, don't need any money, don't want any money. And how they use the money would vary. You know, grants for businesses, vaccine rollouts, dealing with some of the secondary issues of the pandemic, Mm. you know, temporary housing for people who get evicted or like broadband, like because everyone needs internet these days. But the people, you know, the leaders, Democrat, Republican, unaffiliated, they said aid is needed and they know how they want to use the money. By the way, those topics you mentioned are also where a lot of that state stimulus money is going as well. I didn't mention it, but stuff like housing, broadband. Hmm. One last thing, sorry, just because one of the things you do hear a lot from Republicans is this idea of this blue state bailout. You know, I think Colorado would would technically be in that column since it's a blue state. But again, Republicans and Democrats, both sides of the aisle, state leaders, local leaders have been calling on this for months now. Maybe a little bit of a difference between the local elected officials versus some of the federal members of Congress.
There is certainly a lot to talk about when Congress spends nearly $2 trillion. But you'll have to bear with us, Caitlin, because it just wouldn't be fair to completely ignore the state legislature. So um, there's been a lot going on at the Colorado Capitol. Yeah, you know, despite a kind of a disrupted session, we are following the usual pattern. We're now at the point where these really significant, but, you know, some of the more straightforward policy bills are coming up for uh, committee hearings, et cetera, right now. And at the same time, the more complicated, bigger stuff like transportation is just starting to emerge, all the details and all the bills. Right. So I've followed two Democratic gun measures. Mm. The Senate debated a bill to require reporting of lost and stolen firearms. And then the House actually passed a proposal on a party line vote that would require people to safely store firearms. Mm. And so Democrats feel it would prevent accidents and deaths and children from gaining access to weapons. Republicans say it is just not the government's role to mandate this and could prevent people from being able to quickly access a firearm. So that's like one of those secondary gun issues that nonetheless, I'm guessing, turns out to be pretty controversial. Well, yes, it was an intense debate uh, in the House. It lasted a full day late into the night. And then at one point early on, actually, lawmakers had to shelter in place. There was a shooting at a park across the street from the state capitol. I heard about that. Did that shape the debate at all? People on social media definitely pointed out the irony of having this debate while this shooting happened. But no, the policy didn't really apply to that situation. So other than lawmakers briefly being told to stay away from the windows, there wasn't much of a disruption. So having that really heated debate early on in the session about guns, do you think that will affect at all how the rest of the session goes? How did it actually play out between the two parties? Well, one representative, Republican Richard Holtorf, said he thinks this type of measure further divides people, especially in urban and rural areas, and really inflames tensions. He's from southeastern Colorado and does represent a rural part of the state. There are a lot of people from the country that have had enough. Now, what do you mean by have enough? Well, I will tell you, I was having some, maybe some of the most difficult discussions I've had with my people about where are we going from here? And I urged them to not talk and think what they were talking and thinking. Now I'm going to give you a little insight on that. Our country was founded on rebellion. And there are political winds where I come from. And I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen, so let's understand where we're going. Representative Holtorf, let's make sure we're not talking about the next step being rebellion or anything like that. And so that was Speaker of the House Alec Garnett, and then he had to make a similar warning again and then eventually urged everyone to take a breath, get a glass of water, not impugn other people's motives for legislation. Wow. So the implications were really flying there. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've been covering a different set of issues that probably won't get that heated level of rhetoric, but still are going to have a big impact on a, a broad swath of people's lives. The Democrats have put forward what would probably be one of the most substantial, significant, broad-ranging sets of housing bills that they have in recent history anyway. Oh, wow. So what are some of the details? They are talking a lot about evictions, which, of course, has been a huge issue throughout the pandemic. So one of the bills, for example, would set a firm cap on how much you could be assessed in in late fees, you know, not more than two and a half percent of what you owe. More importantly, it would say you can't be charged a late fee until two weeks after the rent is actually due. The general idea there is to reduce the number of different ways that people can fall behind on rent and give them more ability to not be evicted once some of these protections expire. 
So, Andy, are these policies that were temporarily put in place because of the pandemic? Well, there is a set of policies that was put in place, the federal moratorium, some state limits, and those are going to be rolling off sometime eventually. But these proposals that are up for debate now would be permanent, permanent changes in renters' rights. Okay, so kind of expanding what was done during the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, the general message is that the pandemic highlighted the need and just how vulnerable people can be to displacement from housing, and they want to create permanent protections against that. And so, Andy, do you see this housing debate being as partisan as the gun issue? Generally, yes. I I don't think that I've ever heard anybody talk about revolution when it comes to a housing debate, but it falls right into, you know, personal property, private property debates where people are saying, if I'm a landlord, I'm from the conservative side, if I'm a landlord and I'm renting out this unit, then I should have the right to evict you and I should have the right to collect my rent. I've already had some long days with the gun bills, and it looks like you've got that in store for you as well with these housing policies. Committees, here I come. In the course of our reporting, we sometimes come across these moments where we take a step back and say, wait, what? This time it was someone else's reporting that made us say, wait, what? And you two actually alerted me to this news story. It was in the Washington Post. It was an article about how one family is managing during this pandemic. So the author wrote a personal account of temporarily moving with her husband and two young children from Brooklyn, New York to Boulder, Colorado. And now this piece has faced a lot of backlash from especially Coloradans. Coloradans, New Yorkers, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, you know, from the Colorado angle, I think there's a bit of a local tradition of reading these like slightly misguided or misinformed impressions from the coast of life on the wild frontier. I remember one from a California paper that described Denver as being ringed by mountains. And we all had a great time with that because, you know. So uh, so what was it about this story that kind of irked so many people? I mean, Lynn, you're on the East Coast. You grew up in the New York area. What was it about this? There was a lot about this that really bugged me about this story. Like the tone deafness of it all, like the comparisons she was making between Brooklyn and Boulder, basically how they're the same, you know, you, you take away the, the the actual mountains that you guys and the, the beautiful outdoor space you have. And oh yeah, take away all the, the, the minorities here in Brooklyn. And then you get your Whole Foods and your great coffee shops and your like great, you know, hipster breweries. Just everything made me cringe. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just like this media trope of like traveling outside the coast and being shocked to find like a grocery store. I would say as a journalist, you never want to be that reporter on the receiving end for this like mocking story. So part of me did feel bad when I, I saw the comments. Yeah. They were funny, but I couldn't help but feel a little bit bad. Yeah, on a deeper level, it was like, you know, just just talking about like finding all this stuff that you would find in gentrified Brooklyn and, and talking about it like that was like this out and out good thing and just mm-hmm. really reduced Colorado and Brooklyn to this gentrified affluent space. Yeah. Finding the right sushi restaurant, that kind of thing. In honor of this, I I will be sending a resident of a Colorado city, maybe Colorado Springs, to uh, Jersey City, Hoboken, (laughs) to write as an amazing article on the things that are shaping up on the East Coast where I'm from. That would be awesome. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in your feeds next week. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Bent Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny. I'm Caitlin Kim. 
You can follow me at Caitlin Kim. I'm on Twitter at Andy K-N-N-Y. I'm at Benta Berkland. This is Purplish from CPR News. Yo! <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that, but... Yo I'll, is appropriate. I'll go with yo. Yo! <laughs>